listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast that features interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm your host, Mike Costa of Costa Media Advisors. My guest this week is Chef Kenyatta Ashford. Born and raised in the Algiers neighborhood of New Orleans, Kenyatta is one of seven children. He made his way to East Tennessee to attend Lee University, where he played basketball, and he studied to be an educator and coach. Being away from New Orleans made Kenyatta miss the food of his youth, so he spent his summers in the culinary world when not teaching. His restaurant, Neutral Ground, was based in the Proof Bar and Incubator. He won the cooking competition Chot on the Food Network. He created the dinner series, Four Courses And, that promotes bringing together diverse voices around a table of food. The series raises money for high school culinary programs. Kenyatta is a man with a mission to use food to bring people to the table. Kenyatta, welcome to My Morning Cup. Before we talk about growing up in food-rich New Orleans and how you got to East Tennessee and how you're using food today to bring people together, tell me, what's in your morning cup? Uh, I like to drink tea or coffee in the morning. What kind of tea? Uh, yerba mate. Oh, nice. Yeah. How about your coffee? You drink it black or? Uh, now I drink my coffee black. Yeah, I try to stay away from the creamy sugar. Well, good. Well, welcome to my morning cup. So we've talked a little bit before, but you've got a really interesting story. You grew up in New Orleans. You went to school at Lee University. You played basketball. You graduate from college. You're an educator and you're a coach. But in the summers, you spent your time in the culinary world working with caterers. And that love of food, I think that is born into anyone that's from New Orleans has a love of food. So let's talk about that. You grew up in a large family, a family of seven. Talk about those family dinners and how that kind of brings people together and and what you remember from your youth, uh, those large gatherings. Well, the culture of New Orleans, um, we try to figure out any way we can to celebrate any occasion. So food always is integrated into that. So one of the fond memories I have of my youth uh, surrounding food is all of the gatherings that we had during the holidays when I got to see all of my cousins, all of my aunts and uncles and everything. Uh, My mom comes from a large family. Uh, She has nine siblings, and my dad has, uh, there were 13 of them, so I have (laughs) lots of cousins. So anytime during Mardi Gras or Thanksgiving and things of that nature, family always gathered, and food was always the center of focus. Uh, so just growing up in that culture, it's kind of hard not to uh, have a really deep appreciation for cuisine. What were some of your favorite dishes that had taken with you here today and, and maybe expanded upon? Funny that you asked that. Uh, I just went home to visit my, my parents, and uh, my mom made this dish that we've kind of made our name on too here in Chattanooga with Nutriground uh, called Yakami. And I tell you, man, it was so it was so delicious. <laughs> and uh, it's so interesting because the dish came to New Orleans uh, in the 1860s after uh, the Civil War ended, and Chinese immigrants came to New Orleans to build the, the Transcontinental Railroad from Houston to New Orleans. And uh, when you have a large immigrant population come to a place and everything, they bring a lot of who they are with them. And one of the things that they brought was this dish called yakamine, which is shorthand for one order of noodles. And um, it's a dish that kind of morphed and changed and everything with all the mixing and everything that happened in New Orleans. And it became creolized over the years. And it became something that stayed within our community. And I grew up eating it. And it's something that I'm really, really fond of. And my mom made 
that dish when I went home, and I, I tell you, she put her foot in the pot, man. <laughs> yeah. So with your love of food, with that history of food, you go away to school, you're playing basketball, but you decide to become an educator. You don't get into the food industry right away. I didn't, and um, what transpired with that was I probably was living somebody else's dream. Uh, I was encouraged to pursue education as a career because it was the best option as far as having that as a degree to continue coaching. When in my heart of hearts, you know, I wanted to pursue business and there wasn't an opportunity for me to pursue business at that time that I thought I could afford, you know, to, to pay for it myself. So like, okay, it's the degree that I won't have to pay for. So I just took the opportunity. It didn't actually, you know, satisfy my desire as a professional. So within my first or second year of teaching out here in Hamilton County at Tanner High School, I decided to make a pivot. And I began doing lots of research about culinary arts. And as you had mentioned too, I would spend the summers uh, working in different kitchens. You know, one of the first kitchens I started working in was a catering kitchen, and I learned quite a bit. And then I started seeking out other mentors and other places to learn. And I learned about the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York. And uh, I, was, I was encouraged to apply by one of my mentors, uh, who was a local chef. His name was Neville Forsythe. He's uh, since uh, passed away. Before he passed, he and his wife owned a cafe over on Broad Street called Mrs. B's. It oh, was, yes, it was I a, remember Mrs. B's. Yeah, it was a really delicious uh, restaurant, Jamaican spot. And um, he encouraged me to apply to the CIA, and I did, and I got accepted. And um, I went. And that, that experience changed my life forever. You talked about your mentors, and you mentioned uh, Mr. Forsythe. What other mentors did you have, and what did they mean to you in terms of building your career, and how important is that? Uh, another mentor of mine was a chef named Lamont Johnson and Neville. And uh, when I graduated from culinary school, I had another mentor who was my boss. Uh, his name was uh, Steve McHugh. He's a restaurateur now in uh, San Antonio, Texas. Um, they were extremely important. You always need people, you know, when situations arise that you can go and talk to and confide in and be vulnerable with and, you know, kind of express concerns and everything and people to encourage you. Because sometimes, you know, you have self-doubt. You know, situations get hard and everything. You know, you're working for another chef who didn't teach you like this, the chef that you had been mentored by and, and everything. So you, you want advice about how to navigate certain situations and everything. And just uh, just to have some camaraderie with somebody who, you know, uh, cares for you. you know? So uh, it's kind of like a somewhat of a, a big brother, a little brother relationship, or like a father and son relationship. We need those. Yeah, someone to listen and help either confirm your direction or yeah. say, have you thought about this? So this time you're a tiner, but that food bug's there. And it's talking to you. So you do your research and get into a catering kitchen and some other things. At what point did you say, you know what? I'm going to put the education and coaching aside and I'm going full in in the culinary arts. There was a lot of trepidation and nervousness about making the decision because right before I decided to make the commitment, you know, I was up for tenure. I was going to receive my tenure as a teacher. Oh, wow. You were right at the point. To yeah, it. I was right at the cusp of, you know, like, you know, this is secure. I know what the future looks like and everything. This profession, though, culinary arts and everything, I don't know what the profession looks like. I'm going to spend this money to go to school and get into debt and Starting out pays way less than a teaching job. Right. You know, and teachers don't get paid a whole lot either. It was a decision that I made with my heart. You know, I, I was like, you know, this is something that I want to do. And if I don't do it now, I'm probably going to regret it. 
And uh, I was still young enough to get into the profession and kind of make my druthers and everything and kind of take the hard knocks of whatever, you know, the work would entail in order to make it where I can consider myself a success. Um, so probably about my fourth year, I committed to it. I went to visit a few of the schools and everything, and I decided to move my five-month-old son and my wife, you know, to New York. Oh, that's a big commitment. Yeah, and uh, didn't look back. And it seems to have worked out for you. Yeah, it seems to have worked out, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you went to New York to the Culinary Institute of America. Yes. And where did that lead? You? Once you graduate from there, you've learned your skills, uh, you got your degree. If you could, just kind of walk through that career path to that point. So I had some thoughts about what I would do. You know, In the middle of the program, the program at uh, Culinary Institute of America is 21 months. And in the middle of the program, you have to do an externship. So you go out and you seek to find a job in a restaurant that you might think uh, suits your interests or the direction you might, you might want to go in. So um, I decided to go back home to New Orleans and I uh, worked for uh, this restaurant called August in New Orleans and it's a chef named John Besh. Famous and, chef. Yeah, famous chef. There was two reasons I went home. One, because I had family there and I had a son and my wife. It would kind of lower our expenses. And family is always a big thing to me, too. So living in Tennessee, we didn't get to see my family a whole lot. So I thought it was a cool idea. Um, but I wanted to learn from who I thought was the best, which, you know, Chef Besh, you know, was very successful. He was an Iron Chef champion. He just recently won the James Beard Award and everything. I thought the cooking that they were doing was very soulful and very, very much from the heart, as well as uh, elevated. So I, I went, got a job there, and I spent my four or five months as an extern, and I did well enough for him to offer me a job. And uh, that was a highlight of the experience because I, I got a job, a guaranteed position in his organization after I finished my externship. And right I would away. imagine those are pretty tough to come by with a chef of the notoriety of uh, John Besh. Yeah, and uh, apparently I made enough of an impression on him and everything that he wanted to offer me a job. And that experience, the two years I spent working for him, were formidable and very instrumental uh, in the trajectory of my career. So where did you go after New Orleans? Uh, so after we left New Orleans, we moved back to Chattanooga. And you know, being that I just worked for this you know, really great chef, I wanted to you know, continue the path of learning that I had. So I decided not to take a job in Chattanooga. <laughs> 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 so I took a job at this place called Blackberry Farm. And uh, I... Up in the Smokies, right? Yeah, up in the Smokies. And uh, for a time, I didn't have anywhere to live, so I was commuting from Chattanooga to Wallen. Every uh, day? Every day for about two weeks. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, and then I found a couch to sleep on, and then eventually got an apartment. That yeah. had to make it feel a little bit better, because that's a two and a half, three, two hours two, up there? Two hours, yeah. Each way? Each way. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's your love of food. Yeah. I want to learn and, and be the best I could. That was a good place to do it because it's constantly reviewed as one of the places you have to go. It is. It's amazing. Yeah, absolutely it is. What brought you back to Chattanooga after Blackberry Farm? Well, things didn't quite work out as, as I would have liked them to. Apartment I finally got, the people who were renting it to me, uh, their mortgage was being foreclosed on. Um, I decided to come back to Chattanooga and I began working at St. John's. And I worked at St. John's uh, for... 10 months, and I left there to take a job that paid more mm -hmm. uh, because Nikenji, uh, my 
16 year old now is uh, was of school age and we decided that we want to send him to the bright school mm-hmm. so i took a job to make more money so i could pay for him to go to school doing what a dad does which is which <laughs> yeah. is sacrificing so your kids could have better which which yeah. kind of dovetails back into what we were talking about earlier yeah. just how people are who are no matter where you are in the world, I think anyone who has children wants the best for their kids. Yeah, absolutely. Education is a really high priority for me. Mm-hmm. So even before he was born, those thoughts were, were developing in my mind how to accomplish that goal. Well, it sounds yeah. like you've got it on the right track. Yeah. So you're in the food industry in Chattanooga. Which came first? I'm confused. Neutral ground or chopped? Neutral ground came first. Uh, so the concept was developed when I was furloughed from my job at the Reed House. I was a chef de cuisine at Bridgman's Chop House here in Chattanooga at the Reed House. You were a victim of COVID furloughs. I was. And um, I uh, was on unemployment, and I was like, I need to do something. So I started to think about you know, what that would be. And uh, the idea of neutral ground came about. And I wanted to open a restaurant that was casual, where I could serve food that was approachable. Uh, so the neutral ground, my logo has neutral ground spelled out and it has a streetcar in the middle of those two words. And at the bottom it has a common place, you know, a place where everyone is welcome. And we serve food where you can sit next to a CEO and be a sanitation worker and vice versa. And you can eat food that's you know, approachable and welcoming and delicious that everyone would enjoy. So we eventually wound up in a the proof incubator space and probably... That November of 2020, I got a call from one of the producers uh, at Chop because they had left New York City to move to the Discovery Studios in Knoxville. In Knoxville. And they had somebody who had a positive COVID test and they needed a replacement, so they gave me a call. Oh, that's great. Yeah. How fortunate. How fortunate, right? (laughs) How lucky. And uh, I passed the COVID test and it was crazy nervous about this thing and I didn't know what to expect and everything. And we get there and... They give us our jackets and we can get a tour to the stage or whatever where we're going to film. And I was kind of having an out-of-body experience. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you were. <laughs> and uh, it was uh, it was nerve-wracking. But, uh, you know, to make a long story short, I, I got there, you know, got through the first round, got through the second round, and got to the dessert round in the one. That's an incredible story. So you didn't yeah. apply. They reached out to you. What was the most interesting ingredient you had to work with? We, for the first round, we had a basket where we had a Lunchable. Uh, we had um, an apple teeny and some Chinese chicken salad. Oh, goodness. And the second round, we had uh, mushrooms. We had a flank steak. We had spaghetti in a can and um, fruit leather. Oh, roll those up. fruit roll-up things? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then we had the third round, we had cereal yogurt, cookies of some sort. And a chocolate cup of strawberries. Some people ask you, you know, what was it like? And I'll tell them it, it was real. The time, the time that you have to prepare, as you see on the show when you watch it, is actually the time that you have to prepare. Wow. Flies by, huh? It flies by. It's really hard because you have to think on your feet and move and work through stuff as it's happening on the fly. So you have to be able to work on the pressure and be really spontaneous and pivot, <laughs> you know, when necessary. So, And I think that's a great lesson to be able to go through the process and think yeah. and, and not make rash decisions. And it obviously paid off for you in that. I want to go back a little bit to neutral ground. You did a great job of explaining your logo, but explain the name. Well, um, 
in all of the other 50 states besides Louisiana. Places are called counties. We call our counties parishes. Right. In New Orleans, uh, the median is called the neutral ground. And the streetcar travels on the neutral ground. And it's called that name for several different reasons. Uh, when a city began, you know, after you know, the Louisiana Purchase and Anglos began to move into New Orleans, New Orleans began as a French city, and culturally it was quite different. So if you go to New Orleans and you're on Canal Street, which is a huge boulevard that has a big median in the middle, the French side, all the streets' names are in French. Bourbon, Toulouse, Charters, uh, Burgundy, Dauphine, uh, Bienville. On the other side, the American sector side, they're in English, you know, St. Charles Avenue, Magazine. So those people culturally didn't identify with each other. They kind of didn't get along. So the neutral ground was kind of the place where those, those differences subsided. The theme of neutral ground as a restaurant is to be a commonplace. And the story of the pool boy kind of begins with the streetcar. In the 1920s, there was a streetcar strike, and there were these two brothers. They were former streetcar workers, uh, the Martin brothers, and they got out of the streetcar business to open a grocery store. And uh, they really identified and sympathized with the striking streetcar workers. So what the Martin brothers took up as their cause to support the streetcar workers was to feed those poor boys. Uh. So they would <laughs> make a, a sandwich loaf on a French bread and stuff it with something, sometimes French fries and gravy or whatnot. And that's how the name of Poor Boy, oh Boy came about. So in reality, there was a division, but the streetcar was that neutral ground where everyone could come together. So you, right. you took that and that's the name and, and theme of your restaurant. Yes. It leads me into asking you about how you're using food to bring people together. Talk a little bit about Four Courses and, and and some of the things that you see that a commonality we all have, regardless of our differences, is we all got to eat. Yes, food is, is uh, something that sustains us, you know, no matter who you are or where you come from. So Four Courses is something that actually began before Neutral Ground became a thing. And um, a friend of mine and I, uh, Carmen Davis, we um, came up with the idea of doing a supper club that celebrates African-American chefs and also uh, has a philanthropic aspect of it to also pour back into the Chattanooga community, i.e. culinary arts programs here to help you know, educate the next generation of you know, chef entrepreneurs. And we came up with the idea, you know, we executed on it, and the first dinner that we did, we had uh, two times James Beard Award winner and New York Times bestselling author Michael Twitty come to Chattanooga to be the leading chef uh, for a dinner that we held at the Reed House that year. We surround the meal around conversation, uh, topics that affect the African-American community, and um, we have done dinners you know, since then in the same fashion where we have a guest chef and we have a topic of discussion. Also to raise money through the ticket sales and donations. You know, We have auctions at these dinners. Uh, we give away lots of things. We've had some really, really great support from the Uncle Nearest Whiskey brand and Lodge Cast Iron. You know, they're two big supporters of ours, and uh, some of the foundations here in Chattanooga have been really, really big supporters of us and putting on this dinner series. So we're grateful to them uh, and all the work that they've done to help us uh, continue to pursue this passion project of ours and kind of get the word out that uh, as Chattanooga grows, you know, the hospitality industry is going to grow and we need to bring up the next generation of skilled workers. 
And that's kind of twofold. It does serve the hospitality industry by bringing the training together, but it also recognizes the city growth and brings better restaurants. When is your next Four Courses and Dinner? Do you have one scheduled? Um, We just had our last dinner this past September in 2022, but we don't have one planned as of yet. I've decided to take a break to kind of focus more on um, neutral ground and getting it uh, to a place where we'll have a brick and mortar. And hopefully when we get that done, we can have those dinners at our brick and mortar restaurant. That'd be excellent because it's not just the dinner, it's the conversation. It's very important in this town and in really every town, because you and I were talking a little bit about this before, is that Chattanooga's seen tremendous growth and tremendous opportunity, but it's not necessarily been distributed equitably. Mm -hmm. And in talking with you, that desire is to bring everyone to the table. I agree. Um, I think the only way to to have a really true egalitarian society is to maybe approach it that way. It would probably have to cause us to pause and think about you know, some of those things really, really deeply. And uh, that's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. It's obvious to me you spend a lot of time thinking about it and that your direction is not just with your restaurant, but where your heart is. Mm-hmm. Shifting gears just a little bit, um, talk about your food style, Afro-Creole, and, and how that developed Good question, Mike. This food style that I've developed, Afro-Creole, it's twofold. One, I uh, grew up in New Orleans, which is uh, sometimes called the, the furthest North Caribbean city in the, in the Western Hemisphere. And uh, because of all the, the, the groups that have come about to, to create Louisiana and this culture and everything, so what I decided to do, I applied for a grant. This is part of the story that I haven't shared yet. I stopped cooking for a while. In 2017, I spent the year making cars at Volkswagen. I quit cooking because I experienced some burnout. It's a high-intensity profession. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so what I did to get back into the business and everything, I applied for a grant through the James Beard Foundation. I was luckily a recipient. I can still remember the day I got the phone call from the James Beard Foundation. And um, I used that money to go to several places. I went to... Mississippi to uh, spend some time at the um, the Southern Footways Alliance Fall Symposium to do some networking. Then uh, through that, I got myself connected to another chef named B.J. Dennis, uh, who's become a really good friend of mine. And I spent time with him, you know, learning about the food of the Low Country, which people don't really know that uh, Gullah food is very similar to Creole food, and. Um, that was something that I really want to learn about. So I spent time with him because he's a big, big culture bearer of the food of the low country. Uh, he's a great human being. And um, then I went to Africa. I took two trips to West Africa uh, up to this point, and uh, specifically with a group of chefs, uh, black chefs, to learn about the cuisine of West Africa through this tour company called Roots to Glory, which is owned by uh, a friend of mine too, uh, Ada Anago Brown. And um, she is uh, a native of Cameroon, and uh, she lives in Washington, D.C., and uh, or, or Maryland, actually. And um, she and Michael Twitty, this is how I met Michael, came up with the idea of introducing chefs to their native culture, you know, and cuisine, because nobody has really begun to cook that cuisine. This took place in about 2018. In the last, you know, five years, West African cuisine has become a really big thing. Uh, there are several chefs that are getting a lot of attention, and um, I want to learn about 
my Native culture and heritage. Many of us can't really identify or pinpoint exactly where our ancestors originate from, so DNA is a part of that. But uh, it's been a desire of mine for quite some time to figure that out. And those trips you know, help to uh, quench that thirst and that interest. And just talking to you, it seems the educator in you drives that educational aspect of wanting to learn more and to share that as a teacher would. Yes. Learning is, is big for me. I'm very curious. I never want to stop learning. It really uh, drives the way I cook to be able to learn about something and then share the history behind why this is this way or where this might come from and everything actually makes the food taste a little bit better when you cook it. When you're able to share uh, things like that with guests, you know, people really appreciate that. They enjoy the meal a lot more. It kind of gives them a sense of um, a sense of belonging. That's one of the things that draws a lot of interest about neutral ground and what we do the fact that we can talk about a dish or the origins of, of something and actually have a story behind uh, where it comes from. Makes the meal almost an educational experience. And yes. It brings so much more to it rather than just plopping a plate down in front of someone. Absolutely. Being yeah. able to tell that story. Um, when do you see neutral ground in its brick and mortar? Uh, I would say, you know, when we left Proof, you know, the goal was to be there within a year and a half. But I'm working on some other things that I'm probably not going to share right now. <laughs> I read that you have three lessons for entrepreneurs. Believe your ideas into existence. Mm -hmm. People want great and different food. Mm -hmm. And determination is essential. Can you talk about those a little bit? Um, yeah. Believe in yourself, you know, no matter what, because you have the vision. And because it's your vision, nobody's supposed to really understand it. And you kind of have to explain it to them. So it's your vision. And your job with that vision and your belief in yourself is to go out into the world and share that with people. The uh, one uh, about being determined. Mm -hmm. um, grit goes back to belief and everything will get you a long way. Sometimes people rely on the talent. But talent that doesn't work hard won't get you anywhere. Working hard, you know, will get you a lot of places. Even if you're talented and everything, you still have to put in your time and do the work. Otherwise, you know, just another Joe Blow, you know. The one I liked best was people want great and different food. <laughs> Absolutely. And the thing about that, showing up as who you are authentically is important. That's a great point. Be who you are. Be who you are because you're not designed to be anybody else. You know, there's only one you and you're unique. Um, so really figure that out for yourself and be who you are authentically. And I think, you know, you'll find your tribe and your audience and people will really appreciate you. That's such a great point. And one of the things we're trying to do with this podcast, and, and I use the social media example, so many people see things on social media and they think, oh, that's who they are and how they got there. And they question who they are and their authenticity mm -hmm. and be who you are and embrace it, I think is a great message. Yes, absolutely. Perfection is not a thing. And a lot of times social media leads you to believe that, you know, being perfect, you know, is, is something that you should be striving for. Excellence is probably more attainable than. Yeah. And uh, being who you are is a good start. One of my favorite quotes is perfect is the enemy of good. Yes. You know, people get so paralyzed and, yeah. and so stuck. And, and won't, even, won't even take a risk, won't do something because 
it's not perfect. Yeah, I, I struggle with that. Perfect is the enemy of good and everything. And uh, sometimes you can be your own worst enemy. Absolutely. Know? Chef Kenyatta, you've got a tremendous story. And I've got one last question for you, but I really appreciate you being here and, and sharing that with us. Uh, my last question for you is, what would you tell your 25-year-old self? Not about success, but what's important for a happy life? That probably everything's going to be okay. That uh, go after your dreams no matter what. So that's the believe in yourself. Believe in yourself, yeah. Mm-hmm. And everything is going to be okay. We get so yeah. caught up in the, the thing that's right in front of us, you don't realize that mm-hmm. we've all lived through our worst days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So I think one thing that we kind of uh, sometimes get beside ourselves with in our culture is, is achievement, you know, the next, the next, the next, the next, the next, yeah. the next. So everything's going to be okay. If you, you know, stay true to yourself and, you know, your values, which mine are, you know, my family, you know, making sure uh, they're okay and enjoying what I'm passionate about, which is cooking and, and helping others. Everything else will take care of itself. What a great message. And just all of this has been uh, so educational for me, and, and I'm sure our listeners are going to love it. Chef Kenyatta Ashford, thank you for being with us today on My Morning Cup. Yeah, appreciate it, Mike. Thank you. Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup podcast by Costa Media Advisors. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.